You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and this is Five Things That Make Life Better, sponsored by One Day University, onedayletteru.com, where you can watch a college degrees worth of great lectures from world-renowned professors from all over the Ivy League and beyond from the comfort of your home. Well, it's cold out, but the sun is shining, and that makes all the difference in the world. To me, light is both solace and promise. And so I can sit and write with equanimity and see some good in the world, even though George Soros still owes me my lightsaber. That was, okay, maybe a bad joke. I have long been interested in the disappearance of shame and embarrassment. I wrote about this in my book, True Prep, 10 years ago. These emotions have definitely plagued me and, you know, made me uncomfortable my whole life, made me self-conscious my whole life, but they've also given me a strong sense of consequence and limits. They've gone away, not in my life, but in American culture, shame and embarrassment have gone away, I'm going to say, since the first Kardashian sex tape. Because whatever they did was untoward. And then someone said, hey, this could help our brand. I think it's the mother. So that's when embarrassment became a moneymaker. You know, I looked up embarrassment before I wrote this, and it's got physical attributes. When you are embarrassed, your body gives you signals. It may make you blush. It may make you sweat. It may give you a tummy ache or several other reactions you know you'd rather not have. That's how we learn. You know, we're training a puppy. That's how puppies learn. In 2021, people do horrible and horribly embarrassing things and somehow let it slip off their shoulders without a thought. Too bad, I say. Let's bring back a sense of shame and mortification. They really work. Now, my guest this week is Mary Trump, the Mary Trump who grew up in a family that believed in humiliation, but not in the other stuff, not in love and security and affection. It only took about 20 emails, months of phone calls and a DM. But in the end, thanks to our mutual friend, E. Jean Carroll, we got to talk. I read her book, Too Much and Not Enough, cover to cover. And if you haven't yet, it's a good read, like an updated Dickens novel in a way. Fred Sr. and Mary Trump were cruel and punishing. Marielle Trump and her brother Fritz were treated like orphans. But first, and quickly, here are my five things that make life better. Number one, being a grown-up. I hate the slowing down that comes with age, but I love the authority it brings. I'm getting more comfortable being that person, you know, the old fogey who offers unsolicited and unwanted advice. Yeah, that's me. But you know what? I guess it's a, I hate to use this word, but it's a privilege of being older. Number two, Earl Grey tea, because you just can't drink coffee all day. And as much as I love my coffee, it's way too strong for that. Number three, my baby pillow. Exhibit E, I think that's the name of my Exhibit A's wife. Exhibit E gave me a squeezy pillow with an almost life-size picture of the baby. I don't know when I'm going to see the baby again, so I can squeeze this pillow. And, you know, if I don't get real endorphin rush, I get a fake one, and that's good enough. Number four, soup. I don't know how you get through a winter without soup. Why would you even want to? 
soup is everything to me and stew is even more of everything. And right now I'm really into a peppery pea soup and a cream of roasted mushroom soup that's just really buttery. Number five, my Twitter idols, Margaret Sullivan, she's Sully View, at Sully View, and Joyce Vance, at Joyce White Vance. The former is the media columnist at the Washington Post, and I became aware of her when she was the public editor of the New York Times, which was a kind of ombudsman for the reader. She digests the news and the way it's delivered and helps make sense out of the chaos. And Joyce Vance, I've seen on TV, she's on MSNBC and NBC News, and she's a former federal prosecutor who now teaches at University of Alabama Law School. I just retweet everything she says. She's brilliant. In a moment, you'll meet Mary Trump. And it's the first time I've heard her speak for more than eight minutes. So it was pretty great. Don't go away. Mary Trump, it's happened at last. I get to talk to you. I'm sorry I've been such a stalker. But it's great to finally meet you. Oh, uh, it's great to be here. And uh, it's all it's all thanks to E. Jean. All thanks to E. Jean. Now, first of all, I'm worried about you. Is there a target on your back? You have to have been frightened by the maniacs who follow your uncle that they would try to harm you or disavow everything you say. Um, I'm not afraid. Um, maybe I should be, I don't know, but you know, I take, I take the necessary precautions when I feel that it's warranted. But other than that, for the most part, it's been remarkably tame, you know, on Twitter, for example, Mm -hmm. it's overwhelmingly positive feedback. And the negative feedback is either uh, along the lines of you're a grifter or when are your 15 minutes going to be up or you are so disloyal. How could you be so disloyal to your family? <laughs> Which makes me laugh. Wow. So yeah. that's it. Though. You know, that's basically the the biggest complaint I get. And that uh, your disloyal tweet did that come from Eric or Don Jr.? <laughs> they wouldn't dare. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well, let's get right into it. Your book is called, of course, "Too Much and Never Enough: The Greatest Title Ever." How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. And for starters, let me just tell you that I have written about your uncle because I spent a weekend at Mar-a-Lago during his brief marriage to Marla Maples. Oh, that would be around the same time I was down there. That's interesting. Well, when I was there, it was, I think, 1996, and he had been courting a cover story at New York Magazine about his turning his house into a club. Mm-hmm. And somehow I was the lucky person who got to do that article. But the mind reels at, like, if you had a beach house in East Hampton, would you sell tickets or memberships to your country house? (laughs) No, I would not. (laughs) Yeah, it just is the craziest thing. Okay, now I've read your book. I, I ripped through the book, actually. And I'm wondering, the Trump family in a large version, you know, writ large, is it power, money, fame? What makes them tick? I think it's money standing in for everything else they never had or were incapable of having, you know, love, affection, respect. Mm-hmm. 
But money in our society gains you access to all of the other things. So in some ways, it it is literally just how many zeros there are behind the one. But it's also what can it get you? And for Donald, it's certainly, I think, the most important thing to him is attention and relevance. Right. Which hopefully is waning. Right. And so the family lived in a big house in Queens. You call it the house with a capital H. And there were these ritualized events, Father's Day, Thanksgiving, of course, uh, Christmas. But it seems like there was no warmth at the ritual. You had to show up because why? Was grandpa very strict or did he threaten uh, the family if they didn't show up or members of the family? Wow, that's interesting. It it was not never an option. It, like it ne- it would not have occurred to anybody not to go because well, I don't there is no because. It just wouldn't have occurred to anybody. And the truth is like parents really mattered to them, which is why my mom kept going. Well, that was interesting. After yeah. your parents were divorced, your mother had to take you and had to attend yep. family lunches and dinners. Yeah, and and it was it didn't go well ever. And you're right, there there was no warmth in the family. When I think of the house, it, it was sort of like a combination of being in a meat locker and a sensory deprivation tank. You know? Wow. <laughs> so um, yeah, and there was no physical warmth either. You know, the men shook hands, and then the women shook hands and kissed on the cheek. It was very bizarre. No hugging. No. And I get the impression from your book that there was a family term of endearment, honey bunch, because everybody called you honey bunch. Yeah. You said at one point, I'm not sure they even knew my name, but there were only so many (laughs) names that they ever used. And Mary was one of them. Uh, That was, I was being completely sarcastic, but no, it's really funny that the boys were called honey bunch. You know, it, oh. it, it was, yeah, it was just the catch all term of endearment with no endearment behind it. <laughs> with no endearment behind it. So, when you and your brother and your mom, and when he was alive, your dad would be at these meals, would you? I mean, you described playing with some cousins and stuff, but was it a dreaded experience? We have to go to the house, or did you also just think that was a normal family gathering? Both. I thought it was completely normal. And I dreaded it every time. And probably not accidentally, more often than not, I wound up in the hospital with an asthma attack. (laughs) Isn't that? Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Dr. Freud, that means nothing. (laughs) Nothing at all. Total coincidence. Nothing at all. Okay. There's so much to discuss. These are going to bop around, but it's very well known that Donald was considered as a kid trouble, not too smart, didn't work hard, all those things that he still exhibits today. How come once he was banished and sent to military school, how come your grandfather visited him so often? It's bizarre, right? Um, Yeah. I don't know because as far as I'm aware, he either never or rarely visited his older kids at college. I think on some level, I think there were a couple of things going on. One, my grandfather had already decided that my father was not the one. Um, now, your father, uh, Fred Jr., was the, his oldest son and his namesake. Yeah. And, you know, and he expected something a little bit even more of him than he did of the other kids. In fact, he was the only one who mattered because he was going to be the one to take over the, the empire and right. was groomed accordingly. But 
clearly was found wanting in some way. Also, uh, my grandfather's father died when he was 12 or 13. And that's around the same age Donald was when he went away. So, you know, maybe on some level, I mean, despite the fact that he was a sociopath, there was some recognition there that it must have been quite difficult for Donald to be sent away from everything he knew at that young age. But it is fascinating. So your grandfather, Fred, who also was a a lover of hair dye (laughs) and maybe plastic surgery also? That I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. But very much into appearances, starts to put all his energy behind Donald and lets his older daughter, Mar- Marianne, pay for her own law school. Yeah. He won't pay for that. But yet he gets a limousine for young Donald. Mm-hmm. And a chauffeur. Yeah. And a chauffeur. And even Marianne, who's supposed to be the smart one, she never pushed back at all. She wouldn't have dared. So this was a family. Let's just, I'm trying to understand. This was a family that operated as a little fiefdom within the universe with its own rules, its own habits, and everyone obeyed and no one questioned until your father said, I don't want to work in the Trump organization. Yeah. So your father was the first rebel or the first one who said, hold it, I can't, I I can't live this way. Yeah, he was. And I think about how much courage that must have taken. Because again, nobody with the exception of Donald, for various reasons, ever pushed the envelope. They were afraid of my grandfather, as they should have been. And for my dad to be pushed to that point is quite extraordinary. But then we also see, and this isn't, this is not at all overstating it, he paid for that with his life, essentially. Mm-hmm. That act that was seen as rebellious and traitorous by my grandfather, but was really just an adult human being making a mature decision based on what was best for him and his family. But my grandfather certainly didn't see it that way. Which explains why Donald Trump is all about loyalty. Nothing else matters. Is it a smart decision? Does it work? Does it help people? Does it advance anything? No, it's all about being loyal because that's all he knew. So it doesn't matter whether you got somebody named Shapiro to take your SATs for you so you could go to Penn. It doesn't matter whether you went to Georgetown Law School. All that matters is that you do the family bidding. And that's it. And and your family has its own rules and loyalty is the only thing that matters. Well, it's also a one-way street, which isn't really right. how loyalty is supposed to work. So that's the part that's really fascinating because it's not like there's no code. Like even in the in the mob, like people are loyal to each other, right? They're loyal to the family. Right. For them, it, right. for my grandfather, it's like, you know, what can you do for me? For Donald, it's like, are you loyal to me? Even when somebody's loyal, he never feels like he owes them anything. Right. It's incredible. So so the power is is that grandpa would say, I will cut you off without a dime. Yeah. And, he, and honestly, he didn't even have to say that out loud. Wow. It's fascinating that uh, with saying very little, he was able to keep his children in line until Donald. And I think he, for my dad, this is probably the, the, the most heartbreaking thing. Towards the end of his life when he died when he was 42. I think the thing that still mattered most to my father was what his dad thought of him. Even yes, though, it, that, yeah, it was very clear that his father thought nothing of him. It's so heartbreaking. The picture you describe in the book 
of your father now having failed at a career at Trump development or Trump management and divorce from your mom. He's now living in an unfinished attic at his parents' house, having been in rehab for alcoholism and basically ignored up there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, 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 it's just it's like Dickens, yeah. Mary. It's like some kind of Dickens orphan. It, it is. And he suffered so much at their hands and just could never get out. And nobody helped him, including his siblings, because they they have no imagination. Like they could not think outside of the box that my grandfather put them in. In fact, my Aunt Marianne said to me once, and I think at the time she was 78, uh, my grandfather had been dead for 20 years. Uh, she said mm-hmm. that she's still looking for her father's approval. That's oh, the yeah. shadow he cast. Yeah. Oh, I, I see that. There's a scene in the book in which Donald and Aunt Marianne visit your father who is dying, and no one tells you that he's had a heart attack until after he has died, which is something I feel like apologizing to you for. But of course, there was no apologizing for anything in in the Trump family. And then they went to the movies after they saw your father dying. They didn't even see him. My, let's see. This is back in the days before cell phones. So my grandparents sent my father alone to the hospital in an ambulance. They got in touch with two out of their four children, Donald and Elizabeth. Donald and Elizabeth were in the city. They came back to the house and didn't even see my dad. They Uh got sick of waiting around for news from the hospital and went to the movies to kill time. It's unbelievable. And then when your uncle Robert was dying in the hospital, I guess Trump visited him and then went to play golf. Because he couldn't wait around. Exactly. And I saw people saying, you know, you can't judge how people grieve. Like he's not grieving. The guy's not dead yet. (laughs) You know, right. You stay with the person until they die, or at least you stay nearby or something. No, he wouldn't play golf because he doesn't care. He just doesn't care. Do you think Uncle Bob died of COVID? Rob, uh, I don't. I mean, I obviously I I don't know for sure, but I I do know that a couple of months before he died, he had been uh, in the ICU uh, and was in an induced coma because he had blood clots on his brain or something. I mean, I don't know, maybe that is a COVID thing, but I didn't get that sense. Well, if he had had COVID, we wouldn't have known because that was when your uncle was still denying that you could die of COVID. Or that it even existed, really. Yeah. Or that it existed. Yeah. Right. The lies that he tells reflexively, does he believe them when he says them? Or does he put them out there to see if he can believe them? Yeah. I I think sometimes it's sort of a trial balloon to see how far he can push the envelope with people. But, Uh you know, it's pretty easy to tell when Donald's lying. And usually if it's a lie that serves a a purpose for him, you know, he knows it's a lie initially, but then he says it so much that he actually comes to believe it. And he's like one of the only people I've ever met who actually gaslights himself. (laughs) He gaslights himself? Yeah. Like he gets- By lying to himself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Wow. Wow. You know, we can laugh about him a little bit because he's not president anymore, but we really shouldn't laugh about him because- He's harmed us. I mean, honestly, Mary, I feel like I developed migraines because he was president. I believe, you know, that we've all aged more than he has in the last four years because of the emotional weight, the toll of his badness. Yeah. So I know it's sort of, it's laughable, but it's not 
It's not actually funny. Yeah, and it's not over. Uh, you know, it's not over. He's attempting to stay relevant as long as the Republican Party allows that, and they are allowing it. They're continuing the big lie. You know, uh, he's probably going to get acquitted. And if that happens and he is allowed to run again, for example, he'll pretend to. He'll still have that platform. And the, the thing that's really troubling, I mean, not there are so many things troubling, but in the context of what you were just saying, a lot of us have suffered grievously over the last four years. And the last year was just, a you know, a bridge too far. It's been horrific. Like we were already beaten down when COVID came. And because he thrives in division and chaos. Um, yeah, he it's he's basically been untouched. And it's just remarkable because he's not human in the way the rest of us are. He's not human. He's not human. I said that. I said that once because he does not have any human characteristics uh, of soul or emotion, right? He's basically a freak. And I'm asking you as a psychologist now, not as a niece. Well, freak is... <laughs> It's a technical term. <laughs> I yeah. Well, <laughs> um, you know, I don't diagnose him because I sort of don't think it matters. <laughs> we just look at his behavior. It's pathological. It's destructive. Right. It's self-destructive. It's self-destructive. But too. I mean, but yeah. you know, who cares about that part of it? But he is, in some ways, it's almost as if he's somebody who is trying to be human, but doesn't exactly know what that is. So it's this vague approximation. <laughs> It doesn't really come very close. So he is um, so damaged and so willing to damage other people that I was kind of surprised that before the election and after the horrific four years we'd lived through, that people still didn't seem to understand just how far he was willing to go to take all of us down with him if he didn't get what he wanted. Well, I did have a feeling that he didn't quite believe that it was, uh, you know, the big lie that the uh, election was stolen. But then he just, you know, then I thought, well, Rudy Giuliani, who is mentally impaired, is pushing it. And once he has one believer, he can sort of go along with it. And I guess, I mean, who who knows how his brain works? But I thought that he let his people bring him along on that until he believed it bigly. Yeah, I, I think it starts with the fact that he's been cheating. He's been trying to steal this election since the phone call with Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine, for which he was impeached the first right. time, right? So he's been actively cheating since then. And I do not I do not understand why the media did not cover it this way. But between installing Louis DeJoy to destroy the yes. post office, undermining people's faith in mail-in ballot during a pandemic... While he uses mail-in ballots himself, let's keep the hypocrisy as a second theme here. Exactly, exactly. And also telling people that if Joe Biden wins, the election was rigged, even before anybody cast a vote. So with all of that, and Donald doesn't care how he gets the win, it's just that he gets the win. Mm -hmm. So with all of that cheating, he still lost. And he didn't just, I mean, unfortunately, it wasn't a landslide, but it was decisive. Yes, Yes. It's not so much about whether he believes or doesn't believe the big lie. He cannot wrap his head around the fact that he lost because that doesn't happen. And that's the part that hopefully broke him. So I want to know about what you think the GOP behaving like Donald and his siblings around Fred Trump Sr., why the GOP is so scared of Donald Trump. 
I actually don't think they are scared of him at all. I think ah. that they finally found the guy who represents their interests. They finally found somebody who, and they, I, like, I don't necessarily think they even realized that this is what they wanted, but they found somebody who was willing to push the envelope, who was willing to transgress, who was willing to break norms, opening the opportunity for the Republican Party to be the permanent leaders of this country. I, like, I seriously think they're pushing for minority autocratic rule. And in their wildest dreams, they couldn't have imagined that they could have accomplished so much in such a short period of time. They love every second of this. They're not afraid of him. They are him. Well, but, you know, when you look at Lindsey Graham, little Lindsey Graham, who said during Obama's presidency, watch me, mark my words, if a president puts forward a Supreme Court nomination right before the end of their term, I will not allow it to happen. And I'll do it again. Doesn't matter who the president is. And then he pushes through Amy Comey Barrett like it never happened. Yeah, because they have revealed themselves to be a party full of people who actually believe that if it benefits them, it's good. And if it benefits the other side, it can't possibly be justified. So if a Democrat wins, it doesn't count, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. And Donald pushed that to an extreme and they're going to take up that that think about how many times in the last four years the Republicans had a perfectly reasonable opportunity to stop him, and they never did. And they didn't. And they yeah. never will. As long but as it wasn't fear, it it was that he was doing their lifting for him. Exactly for them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, which of the three wives so far have <laughs> has been your favorite, and which has been your least favorite? <laughs> Um, I actually, I don't know Melania. Um, I think she's a horrible human being, but you yeah, know, personally, I, so. I can't speak to her personally cause I don't know her. Ivana is equally horrible human being. She's just <laughs> despicable. Um, uh -huh. And, you know, I knew her from the time I was 12. You um, know her from the time she regifted you goodie yes, bags as yes. your Christmas presents. Yeah, it was very heartwarming. How, yeah, how, that was sweet. How, Those were good details, Mary. I, I hunger for them. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they gave me a lot of material to work with. <laughs> I actually really like Marla. He was married to her during that time when I was writing his, I don't remember which book, second, third, not sure. And, you know, so I was down in Mar-a-Lago once in a while, and she was there pretty much every time I was there. And she, you know, we got along and she was actually nice to me, which I know uh -huh. sh shouldn't be shocking, but it was. And she just seemed like a good person who was in way over her head, but not a bad person by any stretch. Right, right. I When I met her, I found her to be very sweet and mm -hmm. sort of, she was just in kind of a normal world and no one else at Mar-a-Lago was. Exactly. And also she was nursing Tiffany and all these old guys were ogling her. Yeah. Well, nursing her, her baby. It was it yeah. was gross, actually. Yeah. And my family treated her like dirt. They were just awful to her. And Donald didn't do a thing to stop it. Well, that's the thing about the not human freakish stuff mm -hmm. is that nobody did anything nice for anyone at any time in your family. And the fact that you were able to see your family more clearly and withdraw from the Trump hierarchy is a great credit to you, although it comes through a lot of pain, I know. 
Is your mom still alive? Mm-hmm. How is she doing through all of this and with you? And That's I'm sure she was supportive of what you're doing. Yeah, she's okay. I mean, I didn't tell her about it just because it had to be a big secret. And I, I didn't right. want anybody to, you know, I wanted anybody who, who wanted it <laughs> to have plausible deniability. But yeah, I mean, she's handling it well. And, and it's been a really long time since she's had anything to do with them. So. Right, right. Um, now, the kids are your cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, do, how well do you know the three older children of Donald Trump? I don't, uh, you know, they, they're basically a different generation. Donnie was born when I was 12. Ivanka was born when I was 16, you know, so I didn't grow up with them. And when they were older, you know, I was in my twenties, I was in college or, you know, living in the city or whatever. They grew up in a totally different world for me. You know, I, I grew up in the streets of Jamaica, Queens, and they grew up in the gilded world of, you know, rich people, Manhattan. And I really only saw them on holidays. When there was still this uh, demand to show up, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And these children are people who have never worked for anyone but their father again. And he is doing to them what his father did to his generation. He's basically rendering them unfit for anything else. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, uh, they probably work to the extent that Donald worked. I don't think any of them actually knows how to do anything uh, right. except take advantage of their position and power. Right. Well, that's what I meant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I meant. I mean, there they are, spokespeople for him. I mean, I think we've all normalized very crazy stuff. I mean, there has been no president whose closest allies are his children. Never. No. And I guess as everybody's withdrawing from the poisonous orange man, he still has those kids going out and and being defensive and argumentative and uh, lying. Well, they don't have a choice. His relationship with them is as conditional and transactional as his relationship with anybody else. And that's exactly the way my grandfather approached relationships, even with his children. So they know, you know, they know upon which side their bread is buttered. They know that if they don't toe the line, he'll turn on them in a second and cut them off in a second. And they don't want that to happen because what would they do? Right. What would they do? They don't have skills. They don't know. Yeah. Okay. Last question before your five things is, I know I know Donald Trump is a damaged sociopath, but is he smarter than we think? Or, and we, meaning me, or is he stupider than I think? Because some people say, when I say, oh my God, he's so ignorant, they say, no, he's smart like a fox. Well, I, it depends how you define smart. Intelligence is, is a very complex, multifaceted thing. Uh, in terms of some things, he's a complete moron. You cannot be legitimately intelligent person and have no intellectual curiosity. He has none. He's not he educated. He knows nothing. Um, he has no emotional intelligence at all. Right. Um, right. He is exposed to nothing in terms of culture. So his horizons have never been broadened. He's never evolved as a psychological or emotional human being. So in in that sense, no, he's not smart at all. However, that doesn't mean he doesn't have certain skills and instincts. He's very good at surrounding himself with sycophants. He's very good Mm -hmm. at spotting them, you know. He's very good at um, manipulating people. 
And he is charming slash charismatic in a way I find completely superficial, but that does suck a lot of people in. And he's quite good at exploiting that as well. But you know what that's like in a way? It's like uh, having perfect pitch. (laughs) Some people are born with a crazy talent or being a math genius, and some people aren't. And that's like a talent for him because I don't think he thinks about it and works at it, right? It's just something he can do. Yeah, exactly. Like when Rain Man can tell you what day of the week, October 3rd, 1917 was, you know? Yeah. And I, I honestly, I, you're right. It's just an ability that right. that's that, there. It doesn't make him intelligent. He's not intelligent. He's, he's not intelligent. He's not totally bereft of any intelligence, but he's a pretty stupid person. Yeah. And actually, my grandfather did this. This has actually nothing to do with Donald. My grandfather turned Donald into somebody who is eminently useful to smarter, more powerful people, which is why they enable him. It has nothing to do with what he brings to the table in terms of intelligence or uh, knowledge. It's that he's useful. Putin found him useful. McConnell found him useful. My grandfather, et cetera, et cetera. Gotcha. What a world. Yeah. What a life. You you came out of there maybe scathed, hopefully unscathed. <laughs> Pretty scathed. Has anybody ever said scathed without the un? I um, don't know. But you, they should. You grew to be a loving mother and a person of great use and worth to society. And I really think you've done some heroic stuff, Mary. And also, I want to say, from the time you first appeared on TV on the Tuesday that your book came out to now, you've become the most wonderful and most comfortable TV personality of the Trump administration. I mean, can you imagine that it's something you do every day? Did you ever think that would happen? It's really fascinating because, first of all, before the book came out, who knew? It could have been a total disaster and disappeared and sold nothing. So there was no way to gauge how it was going to land. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I knew that I was going to be doing media appearances and also no way to know. Like, it could have been a total disaster. I could have frozen or, you know, Mm -hmm. be like Albert Brooks and Broadcast News. Right. So it was really interesting how, you know, after like the first week, which was a little rocky, how comfortable I became and have become. It was immediate. It was like day and night. It was day and night. It was exciting to watch, actually, and wonderful to have you as such an asset to the news. But before, you know, there are too many befores the five things. <laughs> I had Noel Kassler on this podcast a few weeks ago mm-hmm. who worked on The Apprentice. I also think he's been kind of courageous given that he signed an NDA and your uncle's very vengeful. Mm-hmm. Do you think all that stuff is true about the drug use and the multiple Melanias and stuff? There's no reason to doubt it. On the other hand, though, I would really like some documentary evidence because whether I believe it or not, it's irrelevant. Plenty of people don't. And I think they would only be convinced. Well, some of them wouldn't be convinced no matter what. But some people would be convinced if there were videos or recordings. And I have yet to see any. So that's a little disappointing. Well, I've seen what looks like a big stain in the back of you know who's <laughs> golf pants, but who knows, right? Yeah. <laughs> it 
does look like a stain. Okay. It's just interesting to think that all that sniffing is because of an addiction. That doesn't seem far-fetched to me. Well, it's not. I mean, my family is riddled with addictions. Practically everybody in my grandmother's family was an alcoholic. So, you know, addictions take all forms. My grandfather was addicted to money and power. So it would be shocking if Donald didn't have some kind of addictions. Right. Right. That's all he knew. Okay. So Mary Trump, this has been exciting for me. I hope that I let the audience understand how insightful your book is, how it's important that we understand the character of this person who totally took over the real estate in our brain without buying it, by the way. (laughs) He owes us that. And um, Mary Trump, really delightful talking to you. So what are the five things that make your life better? First, of course, my daughter, Avery. Uh, She is, seriously, she's the best person I've ever known in my life. Wow. Uh, How old is she? She's 19. Uh, (gasps) She's a sophomore in college. Nope. She's a person. She's a a fully formed human being. Uh, And she's just, you know, her laugh is my favorite sound (laughs) in the universe. And she's a deeply kind, really grounded person. She wants to be an elementary school teacher. And she has uh, written out the last few years, which have been extremely difficult with a kind of equanimity I don't know that I've ever had. So I'm proud of her every second. You know, it's been one of those fascinating experiences that I I don't know that you can have if you've never had a kid in that. Like, I literally love her more every day, sometimes from the second she was born. So, well, um, Mary, also, you're a single parent, as I understand, mm -hmm. or have been. Yeah, for a long time. time. I mean, that's all a credit to you. Well, her goodness. I have to be uh, credit where credit is due. My ex and I have co parented really well, even when it wasn't easy. And Mm -hmm. Avery also has a great stepfather. So, you know, I'll, I'll take credit for sure, but I think it was a combination of things. And also that's just who Avery is, you know? Wow. That's beautiful. Okay. So that's a high number one. Number two comes way below that. (laughs) They all do. Yeah. Yeah. They all do. You know, this is in no particular order, but um, I'm feeling the loss of this really acutely now. So I'll put it second, and that would be art of all kinds, Uh, literature, painting, music, opera, uh, all of it. And, you know, when people say, what what are you going to do when we can be out in the world again? My answer is everything. But, Uh um, you know, first, probably, since I do have to pick something, it's going to be going to Broadway shows, going to the opera, going to concerts, going to the museum, just getting my fill. Um, I mean, thankfully, you know, we still have access to literature and music, which I'm sure has helped many of us through these incredibly dark times. But I literally can't imagine, like, I honestly, uh, literature, I think, saved my life when I was a kid, because I had a Mm -hmm. pretty active imagination. and you know, lived in a family that was completely anti-intellectual. So it gave me access to worlds that helped me protect me against this family. So Mm -hmm. I feel really lucky. It's hard to imagine how bereft a life would be without this stuff. So. Oh, yeah. And also 
just on a smaller level, just how different New York would feel if it weren't a cultural hub. Oh, can you imagine? I mean, that's why we're here. Yeah, it absolutely. That and the people, you know? Right. Right. Well, the views are pretty good, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Number three. The sea. Mm. I uh, actually, another thing that saved my life was going to a sailing camp on Cape Cod starting when I was six. And that was sort of my, you know, my dad also took us out to Montauk to go fishing a lot. Um, But really at camp, that was my first real exposure to nature in a sustained way. And for people who've never been to Cape Cod on the Bayside, it's, I think, the only place on the East Coast that you can see the sunset over water because it curves curves around. Uh So you face west. And I don't know, the tide can go out so far. Like I once walked into the middle of the bay for like 35 minutes. <laughs> the tide goes out wow. so far. It changes every second. I also, I love the Caribbean. I Wherever I am, I need to be near water. Uh, it's just, I literally can't imagine being landlocked. I think it would yeah. drive me crazy. Yeah. I'm with you there, having lived on this island of Manhattan mm-hmm. all my life. Yeah. Uh, number four traveling oh my goodness Mm -hmm. traveling Um, oh i sort of remember that yeah vaguely vaguely yeah uh but yeah it's you know where do i want to go first everywhere (laughs) yeah it's going to be extremely difficult to prioritize where to go because oh man it's just something else that feels like it's been taken away from us that we took for granted oh totally right i mean i've been reading travelers blogs about where they want to go first or how much they miss it and i'm also seeing people posting pictures of themselves on little vacations that they're taking now which i can't believe they're doing it's horrifying I mean, you have, I know it's hard, but you have to wait. Yeah. And, and are you, a, are you a go someplace and tour or are you a go someplace and chill? I'm person? a go someplace and act like I live there. Ah, <laughs> so, uh-huh. you know, and I, I guess it depends where, obviously, if it's like the Caribbean, it's totally chill. Uh, right. But someplace like Italy, I just want to be somebody who's from there. So, yeah. uh, you know, I do all the stuff. I could go to the Uffizi every day of my life. But mostly it's just uh, trying to find restaurants that actual Italian people eat at and, you know, just going, yeah. walking. Um, Assimilating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I, I like to go to new places, but I also like to revisit places too, which help with that sense of belonging. And, uh, you know, when, when we are allowed to travel again, I think that's where I'm, I'm going to start with places I've been in love and feel comfortable. And then, you know, later I'll start going to new places again, but just the sense of familiarity would be really nice. As long as it's not familiarity of where I've been stuck for the last year. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And five, and certainly not last, are my pets and Uh, um, animals, I, you know, of all kinds, but I, I can't imagine having gotten through this year without my pets. And I think how how many would that be? I have a cat. I have an African gray parrot. Oh my. And I have a leopard gecko who is a rescue. (laughs) A rescue gecko. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think you win the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But they, you know, I, I can't understand people who don't like animals not in a judgmental way. I just don't understand it. Um, yeah. And I wish I had had more 
and it's sort of a fantasy of mine someday to have like an animal sanctuary and just empty all the kill shelters, you know, of all kinds, farm animals, all animals. So that that's five. Yeah. Um, wow. Now, I just want to mention that you are working on your next book. Mm-hmm. I called am. The Reckoning, right? Yep. And are you still seeing patients also through all of this oh, madness? No, I've been out of the field for a really long time. Uh, you know, I'm not licensed or anything. So I'm not doing that. But this book is about trauma. It's about the coming mental health crisis that we're going to be facing as soon as we start emerging from COVID. But it starts by looking at the history of trauma in this country and that, you know, the fact that this country was born in trauma. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, self-inflicted and inflicted by, you know, white people upon two entire races of people. And how because we haven't, not only have we never atoned for that, we've barely acknowledged it, which is mm-hmm. one of the main reasons we find ourselves continuing to try to settle the civil war, which we never mm-hmm. have. Uh, so, Which we never have, yeah. yeah. So it's fascinating writing a book about trauma while we're all still being traumatized. I would imagine. And it's a, a compound trauma, right? Yeah. Because whenever one trauma sort of crochets the last traumas into its new loop of pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's also this long term. And by the time we got to COVID and the ensuing economic crisis, a lot of us were traumatized uh, in, in November 8th, 20, whenever that was, 16. 16. Um, yeah. And the onslaught of horrors that followed have just didn't, further, stop. didn't stop. So we were already in bad shape when COVID came. Absolutely. As a lot of people have said, including perhaps me, I thought I couldn't hate him more. Yeah. And you can quote me. Just going to say like that, that only hurts us. It doesn't yeah, hurt him at all. Right. Uh, so it's just another way that we're debilitated because, you know, we don't want, oh, we don't want to be that person. That's true. That's true. Yeah. You may have just helped me a lot. Oh, good. Anyhow. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to five things that make life better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Mary Trump, clinical psychologist and writer the niece of former President Trump, and the author of the international bestseller, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. It's published by Simon & Schuster. You can follow Mary on Twitter at Mary L. Trump. She's a great twit. She's great on it. Or tweet, twerson, twerpin. (laughs) I like twit. That's great. Okay. You're a great twit. You know, that's a compliment. You're a good hang. My blog is at lisabernbach.com where you'll find links and photos to all the things and twits in this program. (laughs) This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spressa Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. This podcast is sponsored by One Day University. Until next week, wear a mask or two and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.